Good morning, everyone. Good to see so many of you here this morning, and uh, welcome to this Palm Sunday. Uh, this is the start of Holy Week, and so uh, I just pray that it's a special week uh, for you all as we uh, consider this week in, in greater depth uh, just what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And I tell you, it is a joy to see some faces in our crowd here that we haven't seen in a while, so I'm just delighted this morning uh, to see some, see some folks that I uh, haven't seen in a long time. It's a real blessing. Uh, so this morning, uh, we will be talking about uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 53 through 72, in a message that I'm calling Trials and Denials. Uh, so before we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, uh, this is Palm Sunday. This is the day when you entered into uh, the, uh, the temple area uh, to the praise of of throngs of people, and Lord, they, they laid their palms down uh, to welcome you as a king and cried out, Hosanna, which means he saves. And Lord, uh, by the end of the week, uh, they had crucified you. That's a staggering turn of events, Lord, and we just thank you this morning for uh, what you did in going to the cross for us. And uh, Lord, as we uh, continue to preach through these, uh, some of these final episodes in uh, your final week, uh, Lord, just give us illumination and clarity and, and uh, help us to understand the depths of what you went through for us when you died on the cross for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Martin Luther uh, was a committed Catholic monk when he began his ministry, but he became disillusioned uh, with the Catholic Church, particularly with the selling of indulgences. Uh, an indulgence was uh, when you give money to the church, the church would agree to take a certain amount of time off of the amount of time you would have to spend in purgatory for your sins. So if you gave money to the church, you'd receive a certificate like this that says, in the authority of all the saints and in compassion towards thee, I absolve thee from all sins and misdeeds and remit all punishment for 10 days. So uh, there you have it, a get out of jail card for 10 days uh, based on the certain amount of money that you gave. Uh, so he didn't like that practice. And so he had written his 95 theses in 1917, and he had nailed those theses to the church door at Wittenberg, hoping to inspire debate over uh, these church practices. Uh, but Pope Leo uh, did not find his writings amusing, nor did he care to engage in debate uh, with Martin Luther. Pa uh, po uh, Pope Leo, in fact, was, was quite fed up with Martin Luther, and so he called him uh, to uh, something called the Diet of Worms, in 1521. Uh, sounds disgusting, but a diet uh, means council and worms is a place. Uh, so the Diet of Worms in Germany in 1521. Now, by this time, Pope Leo had already excommunicated Luther for his teachings and his writings and for the 95 Theses. Uh, and Luther uh, had to decide if he wanted to appear at this thing. If he appeared, uh, he might engage in scholarly debate. So that, that's one thing that could have happened. Uh, but probably he thought that they would ask him to recant his writings, and if he didn't, uh, they might uh, deem him a heretic, and they might sense, sentence him to death. Now, the church and the Holy Roman Empire viewed Luther's books and writings as a direct challenge to their authority. So when Luther appeared, none other than Charles V 
the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was there to preside as judge. Uh, and so uh, they, th that would be quite terrifying for Luther. Uh, and Luther quickly realized the danger. And, and so he would have a decision to make. Would he uh, hold to the biblical truth as he believed it, or would he recant his writings uh, to preserve his life? Uh, and they charged him with crimes. And after hearing those crimes, he said, uh, will you please give me the night uh, to consider whether I will recant or not? And after a long night in prayer, uh, he returned the next day. And when they demanded that he recant, uh, he stood before them all and said, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures, then I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. Uh, so tremendous courage that Luther showed against the mob. Now, Jesus uh, stood trial himself uh, some 1,500 years earlier, uh, several times on the last day of his earthly life. Uh, and so in our passage today, we're going to look at Jesus's trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And so uh, he was going to face uh, this uh, intense trial. And meanwhile, uh, unbeknownst to Peter, he was about to face a trial of his own. Uh, that uh, Jesus predicted. Remember, Jesus predicted that uh, Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice. And so what Mark is doing in this passage is he's skillfully weaving Jesus's trial with Peter's trial uh, and contrasting every element of the trial along the way. Uh, every trial has a venue, the, the place where the trial will take place. And every trial has prosecutors and witnesses and evidence and ultimately a verdict. And we see that Peter and Jesus' trials were exactly the same. We have all of those things present. And so where Jesus chose truth, Peter chose self-preservation. And so Mark wanted to contrast here uh, Jesus' courage in the face of trials uh, with Peter's human weakness in the face of, face of trials. Uh, and to demonstrate the sacrifice required to be a true disciple of Christ, a, a committed follower of Jesus, follows Jesus even at the cost of his own life. Now, one more point before we begin. Uh, scholars are almost in universal agreement that Mark wrote his gospel first. In other words, before, uh, uh, before Matthew, Luke, and John, there was Mark's gospel. And so this story that we're about to read today, uh, Mark didn't get that from reading Luke's gospel or from reading Matthew's gospel. Uh, scholars are universally in agreement that Peter was the main source of Mark's gospel material. So where did Mark get this very embarrassing story to Peter? Well, he got it from Peter himself. Uh, Peter, after he had uh, denied Christ and after Christ was raised from the dead and, and after Christ reinstated him three times, corresponding with Peter's three denials after he had been raised in Galilee, uh, Mark was a new man, I mean, sorry, Peter was a new man and he gave Mark this story so that we would learn from Peter's mistakes. So Mark started with Jesus's trial, then he moved to Peter's trial. And so I want us to see uh, the parallels between uh, these different aspects of the trials. And so we're going to have to bounce back and forth uh, to see it. So let's talk about the venue first. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 and 54. Uh, they took Jesus to the high priest and the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. 
And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So the difference in the venue of these two trials is rather drastic. Uh, to put it in modern terms, uh, many of you, many of you if, if you'll admit to it, have probably had to go to municipal court at one point in your lives to fight a speeding ticket or something like that. Uh, and a municipal court, you know, it's nice, and, uh, but it's not really that intimidating on its own. You know, it's always intimidating when you have to go in front of a judge, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just a room, not, not that scary, except for the fact that the judge is going to be there. Now, if you go into federal court, a federal court is a much more intimidating type of courtroom. Uh, this one is, is kind of uh, toned down, but you have lots of oak and you have these deep red carpets and you have leather chairs. And, and in some courtrooms, you know, there's big oil paintings of, of the judges of yesteryear, you know, uh, staring down at you from, from their uh, position uh, in judgment of you. And so that's a much more intimidating setting, even when the courtroom is empty. And if you ever have had occasion to go to the US Supreme Court, well, uh, power just oozes from the walls and from the dais where these judges sit. This is the most powerful court in the entire land. Well, Jesus and Peter went to two very different places uh, for their respective trials. Uh, Peter and the other disciples ran away, of course. You remember that as soon as Jesus was arrested. And so Peter, uh, he was able to watch from a distance because he was free. Uh, this picture is from the Passion of the Christ. Uh, Jesus, uh, Peter is following Jesus closely, uh, but kind of shrouded, a uh, free man watching as closely as he dared come. Uh, and he was able to follow Jesus as, high, as far as the high priest's courtyard. So this is a schematic of what the high priest's residence uh, would have looked like. And so the courtyard is right in the middle here, uh, and this is the high priest's residence up here. Uh, so while Peter goes as far as the courtyard, uh, Jesus is going to go actually into the house of the high priest, according to Matthew 26, 57. Now, inside that, uh, the high priest's res residence would be a very daunting place because it's behind closed doors, right? Um, it's not happening in public where people can see any miscarriage of justice. They could do whatever they wanted to him inside that room because it was inside, it was in private, it was in secret, and it was at night. And so Jesus has a very, very daunting venue for his trial. Uh, Jesus prepared to meet his accusers there at this venue. And Peter, not realizing it, that he was going to face a trial of his own, was just hanging out outside in this courtyard in the middle that did not seem like it was going to be an intimidating venue for him at all. But that courtyard was a far cry uh, from what was going to be from the venue that would exist inside the high priest's home. So uh, the venue for Jesus inside the house of the high priest and for Peter outside in the courtyard. Now, the prosecutors, very different prosecutors in this uh, case. Uh, verse 55 talks about Jesus's prosecutors. Now, the chief priests and the entire council were trying to get testimony against Jesus to put him to death. The chief priests, bigwigs, right? Very important people. And the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land uh, of the Jews. And so uh, Jesus would have no right to appeal this verdict to anybody else. The, the Sanhedrin was it. If they found him guilty, he was guilty. And his life hung in the balance. Uh, so his prosecutors, uh, to, to just show the injustice of this, his prosecutors are also his judges, right? Like in the United States, uh, we are presumed innocent until proven guilty, right? That's our, the basis of our system of justice here. Uh, but when Jesus went into his trial, 
Uh, not only did his prosecutors presume him guilty, but the same people served as his judges, and they had already presumed him guilty. Uh, and so all they needed now uh, was to, to attach some evidence to this guilty man so that they could do what they wanted to do to him. So those are Jesus' prosecutors. Now contrast that with Peter's prosecutors. You have to drop down to verse 66 now to see this. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the slave women of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were with Jesus the Nazarene as well. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The slave woman saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, You really are one of them, for you are a Galilean as well. So, while Jesus faced the most powerful people in the land, uh, Peter faced the challenges of a, of a slave girl and some bystanders. Uh, and the first two accusations came from the, the, one of the slave women of the high priest, uh, and then some bystanders leveled this third accusation at Peter. And so these are common folk uh, without any real authority. And so the contrast between uh, Jesus' prosecutors, all the way up here, the highest people in the land, and, and Peter's prosecutors, you know, a slave girl and some bystanders, uh, is also very glaring. Now, the differences in the evidence presented uh, for Jesus, uh, they had no evidence, right? His accusers could not muster any evidence against him. Verse 55, the chief priests and the entire council were trying to get testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any, no evidence at all. Secondly, verses 56 to 58, their testimony was false. For many people were giving false testimony against him, and so their testimonies were not consistent. And then some stood up and began giving false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that was made by hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. So no testimony, false testimony, and finally inconsistent testimony. Verse 59, and in, even in this respect, their testimony was not consistent. Uh, we would call this a kangaroo court, right? Uh, this is a clown show, what is going on here. Uh, they needed proof to convict Jesus. They had to have some level of proof. And so the chief priests become increasingly frustrated because they just can't seem to get any testimony against Jesus that they can make stick. And so these charges that they uh, are, are desperate to convict him of, uh, so far, they have not proven any case at all. And so they manufacture evidence against Jesus, but their testimony was so badly coordinated uh, that it didn't make any sense. It, they didn't have any testimony. It was false testimony. And even the testimony that they could muster uh, didn't agree. Now, I'm sure Jesus didn't do this, but I can just imagine him looking around and just rolling his eyes at this clown show that's going on around him saying, you guys had all this time to prepare. You've been, you've been after me for a long time, and you can't even figure out how to get a couple of witnesses whose testimony agree. Uh, they couldn't even invent a case against Jesus, uh, even though they had time to prepare. So that's the evidence against Jesus. Now, what about the evidence against Peter? Uh, in contrast to, to the evidence against uh, Jesus, Peter's, uh, uh, the witnesses against Peter actually told the truth. Verse 67, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked directly at him and said, you were with that Nazarene, Jesus. 
Verse 69, the same servant girl said to some others, this is one of them. And verse 70, he must be one of them because he is a Galilean. So the accusations of the slave girl and the bystanders were true. Peter did accompany Jesus. He was one of the 12. He was a Galilean. Uh, so everything they said about him uh, was true. Uh, in in Jesus' case, there was no testimony, false testimony, and inconsistent testimony. In Peter's case, there was true and consistent testimony. So uh, if the charge against Peter was being an associate of Jesus, well, there was more than enough evidence, true evidence, uh, to, co to convict him of the crime. Let's look at the defenses. Uh, most criminals, when they're accused of a crime, offer up some kind of defense. Uh, these, uh, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin accused Jesus three times. The false witnesses questioned him, first of all, about tearing down the temple and raising it up in three days. And then the high priest questioned him twice in verses 60 to 62. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not offer any answer for what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and did not offer any answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus did not answer the high priest when he was uh, talking about the charges that the others leveled against him about tearing down the temple uh, and uh, raising it up in three days. Uh, but when questioned directly about his own identity, uh, if he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, uh, Jesus testified truthfully. And he claimed divinity here. There could be no mistake about it. We know that from the reaction uh, of the chief priests in uh, verse 63. He tore his robes, we're told that. Uh, and so uh, Jesus not only affirmed his deity as the Christ, but then he goes on to give them even way more than they could ever have hoped for uh, when he invoked the messianic imagery of Je Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, to say, I am, is to equate yourself with God. And to say, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven is a claim to divinity. And they clearly did not miss that. Uh, they knew what he was saying. And we would ask ourselves, why did Jesus say that? He didn't have to say that. He could have kept quiet. Well, the answer is, is that if he didn't, if he had remained silent, if he didn't incriminate himself, and all they had to go on was the testimony of these witnesses that had gone before, they would have had to let Jesus go. And if they let Jesus go, then Jesus would not have been able to fulfill the plan that he came to fulfill, the plan that he and God developed long before the foundation of the earth. Uh, he knew that he had to give this testimony in order for them to convict him of a crime and in order for him to go to the cross and die for our sins. So Jesus faithfully followed the plan at all costs. And that's what a faithful disciple does. Uh, and so his words, his own testimony sealed his fate. So that's Jesus's defense. Now, what about Peter's defense? Uh, they also accused Peter three different times, uh, but he never once offered a truthful defense. Uh, verse 67, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked directly at him you were with the Nazarene, she said, but he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you were talking about. 
And then a second time, verse 69, the slave woman saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And finally, verse 70 and 71, after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, you really are one of them for you are a Galilean as well. But he began to curse himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So Peter caved under the pressure of his trial. Now, it has always been hard to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, people who have followed Jesus Christ have been persecuted for 2,000 years uh, for their faith. And, and Christians overseas are being martyred, and that's been going on for a long time. And even here in the United States, we are losing our freedoms for identifying with Christ as his disciples. And so we have to decide where we stand with Jesus Christ. Are we in or are we out? Because if we're in, we are going to have to understand that persecution is going to follow. But on the other hand, to deny our Lord is worse than any persecution that we may ever face. So the defenses, we see that uh, Jesus, silent first, then proclaims the truth, and Peter lies with an oath to protect himself. Now, Peter avoided conviction by his accusers, didn't he? They were not able to pin this charge to him. They weren't able to make it stick to him. But Jesus found him guilty of the crime. And so let's look at that. Uh, first, Jesus' verdict. Uh, Verse 63 to 65, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Well, at last, the high priest had the evidence that he needed from Jesus' own mouth, and he and all the others pronounced judgment against him. The high priest tore his clothes, right? That was something that they did as a show that they were standing in the presence of sin or, or that they uh, recognized their own sin. Uh, and this was a showing of grief and alarm, uh, shock over Jesus identifying himself as God. Uh, but usually when the Jews ripped their clothes, uh, there would be following that some kind of repentance in sackcloth and ashes, right? But that's not what happened here. Uh, the high priest uh, feigned, sh feigned shock, and, but he got exactly what he wanted from Jesus' own mouth. Now, Jesus' truth-telling led to his own conviction for blasphemy. And he was still going to face another trial. He had to go see Pilate, and he had to go see uh, uh, Herod as well. Uh, there were a bunch of trials before they actually executed Jesus. But this one, uh, Jesus st started to grease the skids toward his own execution by giving uh, this, this uh, crowd the testimony that they needed. And so Jesus, who never once sinned, volunteered to pay for the sin of every sin that has ever been committed, yours, mine, and everyone else's. So Jesus was found guilty. Peter, verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And so immediately after the cock crowed, Peter knew that he had denied Jesus, just as Jesus predicted. And Luke's gospel says that after the cock crowed, Jesus looked 
and turned and looked right at uh, Peter. And then he went out and wept bitterly. Uh, take a look at this short clip from uh, The Passion of the Christ. an eshalak yeshuansaret amarlana en ant meshiyakha bar elachachai scene must have gone, right? We read words on a page. Uh, sometimes you have to put them into moving pictures um, to get the full weight of it. Um, uh, I just can't imagine how Peter felt. Uh, he preserved his own skin, right, at the cost of denying his Lord. Uh, and I bet Peter, you know, in retrospect, years later, would have given anything to have had that moment back. And so uh, while uh, Jesus is being beaten with fists, uh, they demanded that he prophesy. And the ironic thing is that Jesus had already prophesied, right? He said, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows twice. And here it is. Uh, Peter fulfills the prophecy. So uh, the summary of the verdicts then. Uh, Jesus found guilty uh, by his accusers, uh, Peter avoids a guilty verdict from his bystanders, but Jesus finds him guilty by staring him right in the eyes uh, as he's going through what he's going through. It's powerful stuff. Mark presented Jesus as the faithful follower of God who, who spoke truth, uh, even though he knew that they would kill him. But when the rubber met the road, Peter became afraid, uh, afraid of what they might do to him. Uh, and he, he denied Jesus. And so we all have to look at a clip like that, and we have to look in the mirror, and we ask, have to ask ourselves, uh, how far are we willing to go? Uh, what are we willing to say? Uh, how prepared are we to follow Jesus no matter what? 
uh, in the not too distant future, Christians may face all kinds of persecution uh, for following Jesus. And that may come from fr friends and family. Uh, that's you know, relatively easy to deal with, I think, but it may come from our own government as well. Uh, the groundwork, as you know, uh, is being laid right now. Uh, this current administration seems committed to removing religious freedoms that uh, our country was built on. Uh, and just take, for example, uh, the so-called Equality Act. Uh, the Equality Act is going to require faith-based hospitals and doctors to perform gender-changing operations uh, on people, if it, even if it violates their religious beliefs. And they'll require them to do this to minors, even. And it's also going to force faith-based adoption agencies and faith-based uh, faith foster care agencies uh, to place children uh, with same-sex couples. And if they don't, they will lose their license. And that's just the beginning. The, the Equality Act, if you read it, is just wide-sweeping, far-reaching. Uh, and it's going to have effects on you and me as individuals, not just hospitals and, and, and doctors and, and adoption agencies. And you, you know, I'm sure, that the current administration has uh, repealed the Mexico City policy, which happens every time a, a, a new administration comes in. Uh, the Mexico City policy forbids any foreign country who receives aid from the U.S. to use that aid to perform abortions. Uh, so now, with the repeal of the Mexico City policy, your tax dollars and my tax dollars are going overseas, and it is being used to fund abortions. And the attacks may become even more personal. Uh, who knows uh, what is going to happen? Uh, the, they may try to eliminate the church's uh, tax exemption uh, for, uh, for, for preaching the gospel. Uh, what I am saying right now could be defined as hate speech in the not-too-distant future. And it might land me in jail uh, to stand up here and speak publicly uh, against what they might say is, is a, a challenge to the government. Uh, so we have to know how we are going to respond when persecution comes, because it's not far off. It's coming. We have to know what we're going to do. And, and I pray that Jesus will be our model. He completely obeyed the Father's will at every step, knowing what was going to happen to him, even though every single aspect of his trial was illegal. And if we look at Jesus' trial just quickly, <clears throat> we could identify at least 11 things uh, that are illegal about this trial, that even if one of these things was present in a real court, the case would be thrown out uh, of, of, uh, of the court. And uh, one of them was that uh, the Jewish law required that trials happen during the day. This makes sense, right? In public, where people can see that the courts are just and fair. They tried Jesus at Caiaphas' house rather than in the temple courts. You're supposed to be tried in a public setting where people can come and see, but Caiaphas' house is private. Not anybody could go in. The court was closed on the Sabbath and all seven biblical feast days. So you have to think about this for a minute. <clears throat> Jesus' trial started the day before uh, the, the Passover, and it was illegal to carry any trial over from the day before the trial over the Passover to the following day. So all cases that were started before the, that feast day or holiday or Sabbath day had to be wrapped up that day. Uh, so, but in this case, they violated their own law because they tried him the day before the Passover or the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and that's a problem uh, for their own law. Uh, witnesses had to be examined separately 
to see if their testimony agreed. That's obvious enough, right? If, if I say something in court uh, and you want your testimony to agree with my testimony, you listen to what I say and then you repeat what I say. Uh, and that's what they did. They did not do that in this case. They did not examine them separately. Uh, they, they tried to make their testimony agree, but they couldn't even get that part of it right. Uh, the law required each member of the Sanhedrin to vote on the verdict separately from youngest to oldest. You had to cast your ballot in a box. But here, they rose up as one mob and found him guilty. Uh, the law required a full night between conviction of a capital crime and execution. Now, that's obviously to give them time to reconsider uh, what they were about to do. They were about to execute a man. Uh, what's the big deal if you wait 24 hours just to be sure in your mind that you have it right and that maybe he should be convicted but sentenced to a lesser uh, sentence or something like that? Uh, here, they had no time pass as they rushed to judgment. All they were trying to do was get to Pilate as fast as they could uh, so that he could authorize this execution. The Sanhedrin received the testimony of false witnesses, a testimony they knew to be false and in fact invented and manufactured themselves. They forced Jesus to incriminate himself, right? You have the right to remain silent. That's how our system of jurisprudence works. But Jesus spoke up uh, being cross-examined. He did not have to testify against himself in his own case, uh, but they forced him to, placing him under oath. There was undue haste to finish the trial. As I said, you're supposed to take two days, but they were trying to get this thing done before the Passover began. Um, Number 10, they didn't release Jesus when the testimony of the witnesses did not agree. That should be automatically, uh, if the standard is uh, like it is in, in our country, that you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, how can you have, not have reasonable doubt when none of the witnesses' testimony agree with each other? Uh, and so there should have been a not guilty verdict or at, at, at the least a mistrial. And then the last one, uh, this one we haven't covered in our passage, but uh, reading on into Mark chapter 15, when the, when the venue of the trial shifted uh, from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, they changed the charge, right? Because they were able to convict him before the Sanhedrin of blasphemy, but Pilate didn't care at all about blasphemy, right? What's it to him if, if uh, you know, one uh, Jew blasphemes the Jewish God? He doesn't care. But what he does care about is a threat to Rome. Uh, and so Jesus called himself a king, and that's a threat to Rome. And so the, tr the charges changed between uh, the Sanhedrin and when they got to Pilate. Uh, so Jesus's trial was the greatest miscarriage of justice ever committed. And he could have complained to Pilate about these abuses, right? He could have done that, but, but Jesus went through it. Uh, he, he turned the other cheek. He had to go through this because how do you convict a, a sinless man of guilt? You can't. So, so Jesus has to go through and allow them to do what they did to him so that he could accomplish the mission that he and God had planned. And Peter, I'm sorry, Mark contrasted Jesus and Peter to show us the cost of discipleship. Uh, following Jesus is hard, and we are going to face decisions about whether we're going to follow him or whether we're going to shrink away like Peter did. And, you know, we're never going to do this perfectly, right? Uh, even, uh, even though we know what we're supposed to do, there will be times when we shrink back. And I just don't want us to forget the grace of Jesus. Remember when in the passage we discussed last week, uh, Jesus said, uh, when I rise, uh, Peter, 
And when I rise, you disciples who are all about to abandon me, go and meet me in Galilee, and there we'll talk again. And that is grace. Uh, so when Jesus met Peter there, he restored him three times, corresponding to Peter's three separate denials. And he said, do you love me more than these? Go and feed my sheep. And so we're never going to be perfect. We strive for perfection. But when we fail, just remember that Jesus always gives grace. Uh, so an astounding contrast between the trials of Jesus and the trial of Peter. And Mark shows us this to show us what it looks like to be a disciple. So let's think about some applications. First is this, don't place too much confidence in yourself. Uh, any power that we have is from Jesus alone. He gives us the power that we have. And Peter's problem was overconfidence. He, he, he got close, he got too close. Uh, and he swore to Jesus that he would never deny him. But then he, when he was among Jesus' enemies and, and terrified, when the rubber met the road, he wasn't strong enough uh, to go it alone. Now, Peter made himself vulnerable uh, to, uh, to failing by, by sitting and standing among Jesus' enemies. Uh, Peter learned in his own strength that he was powerless. And we all have sins that, that, that we have a hard time with. And so uh, the lesson is don't get too close to the sin that you don't have any control of yourself when you're in its presence. Uh, don't hang around with people who are doing the same thing that you have a struggle with. You have to stay away from those things. Don't put yourself in a vulnerable situation. You're not strong enough in your own power to resist. Stay close to Jesus, away from the thing that's causing you trouble uh, and uh, the sin that ensnares you. Uh, always remember uh, that you shouldn't place too much confidence in yourself because only through Jesus do we have the power to resist temptation. Secondly, plan your response to persecution in advance. As I said, we are watching the persecution of Christians ramp up right in front of our eyes. Uh, so what will we, we do when they tell us that we have to bow down to their agenda or else and then fill in the blank? Uh, I think the day is coming, and I think it's coming quickly. We need to plan now uh, what we're going to do when it happens. We can't be taken by surprise. So here are a couple of things that I've resolved to do or not to do when the persecution comes. Uh, I refuse for anybody to tell me what I am able to say from this pulpit. If they tell me you can't preach the gospel, well, I'll keep on preaching the gospel. And if they throw me in jail, they throw me in jail, and one of you kind people will bail me out. <coughs> If they compel me to try to marry anybody other than an adult uh, human male and an adult human female, uh, I will refuse to do that. It's amazing to me that we have to make these distinctions anymore, but we do. Uh, I will not do that. Uh, I will, uh, if they try to force me to hire somebody at our church who does not agree with our view of God or, or sin or sexuality, uh, I will say no. And if that lands us in trouble, well, that lands us in trouble. Uh, I just will not, uh, I will not go along with any governmental agenda that violates uh, what God says. And we also have to remember, though, uh, that God says, obey the government, right? That's Romans 13. We'll get to that uh, in a couple months, I guess, in Romans chapter, when we get through, as we go through Romans. So we have to balance this. Uh, I'm not saying that we are rebellious against the government. We're only rebellious against the government when they ask us to do things that violate God's law. So <clears throat> I'm not going to do that. And you need to figure out for yourself, what are your lines? 
where are the lines uh, that you will draw that you are not going to cross? You have to know that in advance. And when you've learned what those are, when you've, when you've thought biblically about what those lines are, you need to teach them to your children. You need to teach those things to your grandchildren uh, because when persecution ramps up, you need to be prepared in advance. Uh, your kids, your grandkids will face persecution if Jesus doesn't come first and you have to count the cost. Uh, <clears throat> so Martin Luther stood before a mob. Jesus stood before a mob and you and I someday may stand before a mob. Jesus and Martin Luther prayed for God's strength, and they were able to summon the courage to follow God. So we need to plan, prepare, and pray for what we're going to do so we're ready when it happens. And finally, we need to abide in Christ at all times. Uh, what I've just said about how I intend to resist the government if it comes hard against what I'm saying up here uh, may sound like big talk. You know, we never know what we're going to do until we're actually faced uh, with uh, this situation. And that's why I'm saying we need to pray, plan, and prepare uh, in advance. Uh, the only way to stay strong in the face of prosecution is to abide in Christ, to, to be solid in where you stand with Christ. And that means praying constantly, uh, asking for the strength uh, to, to follow through on our convictions. Uh, I ask for your prayers for, for my family you know, uh, a pastor has a bullseye on his back, right? Especially in our current climate. So I pray that I would stand strong, that my family would stand strong in the face of persecution. Uh, Jesus prayed in the Garden, uh, Garden of Gethsemane that, that he would be strengthened and have the courage to go forward. And if Jesus needed to pray for his father's strength, how much more do you and I need to pray for the father's strength? Uh, so following uh, Jesus, being a faithful disciple is very hard uh, we need his strength and we need his power. Abide in him, because apart from him, we can do nothing. Amen? Amen. Lord God, uh, we enter into Holy Week this week, and uh, we've been looking at some of these episodes that occurred uh, leading right up into your crucifixion. Uh, Lord, we'll talk more about the crucifixion on Good Friday. Lord, you endured so much for us so that we could be purchased from the penalty of our sins. Lord, help us this week, every day, to meditate on uh, what is happening uh, or what, is, what happened in your life during that last week. Lord, help us to love you more, to, to just treasure you more uh, because of what you've done for us, Lord. And may it change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.